Hello and welcome to Independent Clause, your anthropomorphic writing and literature podcast. Episode 14. That's not the character I remember. I'm your host, Sparth. Today, I want to talk about long-term changes in characters. Specifically, I've had a lot to say about this topic since the eruption of so-called fans over the portrayal of certain characters in Star Wars The Last Jedi. If you haven't seen it yet, there may be light spoilers, there will probably be heavy spoilers, and I'll give you a heads up if I'm about to say anything particularly revealing. Essentially, the larger issue, not related to Star Wars specifically, is returning to a character years later, either the character themselves having aged, or the author. It's something that happens, certainly. Maybe you always wanted to write a sequel to that story you really liked, but uh, other projects kept you from it. Or you didn't have any ideas then, but something clicked into place recently. Either way, you're going to have to get reacquainted with your world and your characters. In its way, character consistency in a situation like this is far more difficult, really, than world-building. I mean, world-building, you can keep a notebook for, or a private wiki, or some cocktail napkins with drawings of angry porgs on them, whatever. But human behavior, and here I use the term human to mean a sapient, emotionally and intellectually driven creature, be they actual human, or furry, or chiss, or trandoshan, Human behavior is the result of interrelated psychological and physiological factors as well as exterior stimulus. Two people raised in the same environment and confronted with the same set of problems may solve them the same way, or they may take radically different actions. It seems counterintuitive to me. I fall for more into the nurture side of any given nature-nurture argument. I'm sure I've mentioned that on the podcast before. As an example, um, in Metal Gear Solid 2, which is, there are going to be spoilers here, but uh, if you cared about Metal Gear Solid 2, you either played it long ago or the Statute of Limitations is long expired. Revolver Ocelot, revealing the purpose of the whole operation your character Raiden has been engaged in, says that given the right situation, the right story, any man can be shaped into Snake. I don't think that's true at all. There are factors at work inside the human mind that we're not even aware of, which affect our decisions. This can be true for characters we write as well, and probably will be if you're writing them well. Now, this is not to say you should have your characters behaving in a completely random or arbitrary manner. To further reference Metal Gear Solid, there used to be a fan comic called The Last Days of Foxhound, and I think you can still find it at its website at gigaville.com. But as a side, in which one of the plot points was that Ocelot has a disease called chronic backstabbing disorder, wherein uh, he'd betray anyone and everyone at any time if he didn't have his medication inhaler. It was quite funny, but it wasn't too far off the mark based on the games that had been released at the time. I myself don't have the hate boner for Kojima's writing that some people do. I always found the moments of Ocelot's betrayal in the second game to be weirdly appropriately timed for the player, but not really the most sensical in-universe. So his writing isn't perfect, and boy does he go on forever. But um, overall what he's doing generally I enjoy. 
One thing that the series did teach me, though, is that if you know where you're heading, you can make those seemingly random choices pay off down the line, as long as you accept that you may lose some members of the audience along the way. Now, a few years ago, I wrote a little erotic Halloween story for the second volume of the now-dead trick-or-treat anthology from Rabbit Valley. As I wrote it, I ended up creating a nifty little world that I wanted to do more with. Since then, I've been working on and off on a novel set in that universe with my short story protagonist Simon as the main character of the novel. The novel takes place some unspecified time after the short story, and it's now years since I wrote it, so I have found that going back to Simon's character as he was written presents some unique challenges. Even two years is a lot of time to pass for a character like him uh, without having learned more about the magic and the workings of the Achilles Club, to which he was invited as a member at the end of the short story. So first I have to figure out now what he does know, what he doesn't, why he doesn't know or does know. He began the short story as one of those Victorian-era atheists of the post-Enlightenment era, skeptical and aloof from the pageantry of the club that he was joining. The club is a very Victorian, neo-pagan, spiritualist sort of thing. Uh, I sort of base them a little bit on things like the Temple of the Golden Dawn. In reality, he was a high-priced sex worker, uh, filling a very specific niche for a group of very wealthy and well-connected British upper-class men. So, going back to him later and realizing that he needs to be far more fleshed out as a person, and also realizing that I have grown and changed as a writer and as a person myself, I started making a series of notes about things that have happened in his past, how they affect him, that... This is the kind of pre-writing that plotters do so much of, and that pantsers hiss and back into the shadows, you know, with their eyes glowing an angry yellow. Some people can write characters without this kind of on-page work, and some can't. I am decidedly in the latter camp these days. Uh, it's just too much to keep in my own head, so notes are essential. One of the things you need to realize in this kind of scenario is that even if you followed a specific way of fleshing out a character in an earlier work, let's say want, need, ghost, that I learned from Kyle Gold, those things probably aren't going to be the same for the character sometime later, and accusations of stale or non-existent character development will often follow if they are. As a side note, Writing Excuses, another podcast I really recommend, did do an episode dealing with what they termed, I, I believe, iconic characters. Characters like Conan the Barbarian or Drizzt, who have long-running series in which the characters change very little, if at all, because the character as written is what the audience comes for. Most of what I'm discussing here is applicable in one way or another, but my perspective is usually from more character-driven stories, whereas... Uh, an iconic character is expected not to change very much. So what about you, the author? If you've been away from a character for a long time and are returning to them, you've got to pay attention that changes in said character come from a logical place. Now, you're not obligated to share that reasoning with your readers, of course, and a lot depends on how much time you're having passed between stories. If we're away for a long time... 
the changes in the character can be more significant without requiring an explanation. This isn't a good example uh, at all, but let's let's use that Zootopia comic meme from several months ago. You remember the the over the top uh, telenovela style pro life one. Let's pretend it was made by Disney for a second. I know that's a stretch. Given that the characters look like very little time has passed since the end of the movie, those changes in character interaction are absolutely absurd, which is what makes the comics so hilarious and cringeworthy to read, and yet so teeth-grindingly upsetting. Part of that irritation is seeing that change with no explanation forthcoming as to what or why. It's so massive it jars us completely out. If you want to have that massive a change, something has to catalyze it. And you can do that, but either you have to show what it is, and that's tricky if, if there's not enough time for a lot to have happened, or uh, you can extend the amount of time between stories and let things happen off camera, as long as you're willing to dive into what some of those things are, even if it's only hints. Now, to go back to your own writing, let's set up an arbitrary situation. Let's work with that. Your character was a young, 20-something uh, deer college student. Uh, antler deer. Um, let's see. He loved to drink and party, and he would often find himself in a new stranger's bed every weekend. The story was about an STD scare and moving away from drinking before going out with a new hookup. Okay. Now let's add 10 years onto the story. There's a lot that can happen in 10 years. And this is just my example. I want you to think about your own, what you might do, and how you would tell the story. Our protagonist is now 30-something. He's working as a graphic designer since he can work from home. He doesn't go out much. He has his groceries delivered. He visits the liquor store once a week and comes home with six or seven bottles, which will be gone by the time he goes back. He sits down at the computer and stares at a magazine ad he's laying out, and then alt-tabs over to social media and chats for a bit. His phone buzzes with an alert. It's the dating app he installed forever ago and keeps forgetting to delete. One new message. Simple. Hey, you're cute. I'm also a big fan of the Greaves. Would you want to grab some coffee with me sometime? He checks the sender's profile half-heartedly. His photo is an artistic canine silhouette, not really revealing. Skimming down the age, height, weight, all that stuff. Species, wolf. He jabs the lock button and hurls the phone to the couch, grabbing a nearby bottle of vodka and taking a huge swig. With that kind of difference in a person on several levels, your imagination can fill in the gaps pretty well, probably. In my opinion, it's in the author's best interest to let the reader's imagination run with the how and the why of it, but not too far. Sprinkle a few clues in here and there. In my case, if the reader knew he was giving up drinking, but was very social, and now he never goes out except for booze and drinks tons of it, and has a viscerally negative reaction to a predator species contacting him on a dating app he didn't even really mean to have active? It paints a picture. 
You can fill in the trail with breadcrumbs until time for the reveal. Or you may never need to fully reveal it. Just leave breadcrumbs that progress to tiny chunks of meat or other larger chunks of bread, for that matter. So long as the story you're telling here in the present is coherent and compelling, the reader should, dis should derive some pleasure from it. You're not obligated to explain things if they aren't relevant to the story you're trying to tell, either. Now, here's where I'm going to go into The Last Jedi as an example. This is going to involve spoilers. You have been warned. Still with me? Okay, good. In The Force Awakens, we are given what we think are several mysteries that need to be solved. The identity of Supreme Leader Snoke and the origins of the First Order, Rey's parents, the provenance of the Skywalker lightsaber that comes from Maz Kanata. I've seen this derisively referred to as mystery box storytelling, but more so I've seen it referred to as quote-unquote plot holes because something wasn't explained. A plot hole is not the author or filmmaker not explaining all the details to you. A plot hole is when something makes no sense given what we already do know. The closest thing to a plot hole there, in all of that that I listed, is the lightsaber. And the lightsaber wasn't destroyed. It fell with Luke's hand. Uh, who knows how it was found, but it was entirely possible that it would have been found. That chamber wasn't bottomless. Uh, Luke didn't fall straight down through the chamber. He was sucked off into a vent off to the side. It could have gotten stuck in a filter. Who knows? Anyway, fast forward to The Last Jedi. And what happens? Again, spoilers. This is a spoiler. If you are listening to this I don't want you to complain to me that you had The Last Jedi ruined. Okay, what happens? Snoke goes out like a wannabe Palpatine that he is. And Rey's parents are nobodies. And the entitled portion of the Star Wars fanbase lost their minds. How dare Disney not hand them everything they wanted to know. But to tie this in with my overall point, Luke is that character we haven't seen in 30 years. Now, Han Solo is pretty much the same character. Like, he really is. Leia is still the leader. She's a quiet, stoic. She's a little more sad than she was, and given what's happened, and so is Han. But Luke... We've gotten hints about Luke. When we finally see him, he is not what we've come to expect. Part of that is decades of expanded universe material, of course. Perception, perceptions can be easily colored by that, and the same fans who are angry at the new films are also the ones who were most outraged when Disney wiped the EU from canon, which kind of never was canon. Lucas didn't consider them canon. Uh, there was this idea that um, anything that was licensed was canon unless it was specifically declared non-canon, and it was sort of this uneasy truce. Like, there was only a handful of things that were non-canon late in the EU's run. 
the last, uh, the New Rebellion, which was one of them, which was possibly the worst Star Wars novel I ever read up until the beginning of the New Jedi Order, uh, which is when I stopped reading. Uh, Children of the Jedi was non-canon because uh, episode one, two, and three completely wiped its plot out. There were a handful of other things. Um, the video games were dubious canon. Uh, the books were a different level. It was a complex mess. Leaving out the EU, there's a very good arc for Luke. He's there on the Jedi planet to die. He's there to be left alone and to forget his failure with Ben Solo. And we get little hints as to what caused this change from the Luke we expected to see until he finally ends up revealing everything to Rey just before she leaves. Ultimately, your stories are yours to tell. We as writers hope that our stories will resonate, that they will please the audience, but sometimes, maybe even often, that will turn out not to be the case. And the reason I bring up Star Wars so heavily in this episode is because of how obvious some in the audience have made their displeasure. Luke's character arc brings him full circle. He talks about how he became a myth and started to believe his own myth. And he failed. It's the story of every gifted child which I was one, uh, being told over and over how intelligent and awesome and smart you are, never really having your work ethic praised, and then you reach college and over time maybe you slack a little or something happens, or you hit the point which you're no longer able to glide by easily without heavy studying or doing extra work, and you either fail or you drop below where your grades used to be. And that can be an earth-shattering moment. And I think Luke had that moment with Ben. In the end, we come to realize that failure is the greatest teacher. And Luke was told to pass on what he had learned, but... We always interpret that to mean our successes, and so did Luke. And it's pointed out to him that his failures and the failure of the Jedi needed to be passed on too, because you can learn from those failures. And oh man, the Jedi at the end of the Republic were full of failures. His final sacrifice, the Force projection, the fight with, with Kylo... Those things complete his arc. They return his determination to do what needs to be done. And I think we're going to see more of him uh, as a Force ghost. When you're writing, you may have all the high-minded goals in the world. You may know your literary craft inside and out in Sanskrit, underwater, and with the lights off. 
even with all of those things, all of that knowledge, sometimes your work just isn't for some readers. Just remember, ultimately, your worlds belong to you, and you should stay true to your own intentions. Craft the story you want to read. You will find your audience that way. Even if it doesn't seem like it, even if you have 10,000 people telling you that this sequel ruined your other work. We won't always succeed. And sometimes we write bad things. I will I will tell you that um, as a writer, a lot I write very slowly. And so I'm a little more meticulous, but I get really nervous handing my work over for critique. And I get nervous for that because failure is frightening. What if the people who obviously I trust, my writing group, I trust their opinions implicitly for the most part. Like, I don't always accept them. I, I can disagree, but I trust that they know what they're talking about and that they are going to give me honest critique. And it's terrifying. And you have to to do it. But because I mostly write for publication, because I write so slow, I have the double whammy on every single story I write, because I have the incoming acceptance or rejection from the editor, as well as my own writing group, assuming I am able to submit it to them for critique before I have to send it off, because deadlines are also not my friend. Before I go today, I want to make two book recommendations to you this time. The first one is The Tower and the Fox by Tim Sussman. It's published by Argyle Productions, which is an imprint of Fur Planet. It's their more mainstream uh, arm. When I say mainstream, it's they're still um, sort of furry and uh, sci-fi related, but they're in a small press, but they're designed to sort of reach out beyond just the fandom a little more. Um, the Tower and the Fox is set in an alternate history colonial America with sorcerers and uh, magically created furries called Collations in a human world. I really dug this book uh, for its lovable characters and their struggles to fit in. Like the author's other work, Tim Sussman is the alter ego of Kyle Gold. This is heavily character-driven, so if you want the plot to push the characters into action rather than the characters pushing the plot around, this one may not be for you. The back of the book reads, For Kip, growing up in the shadow of the human, men-only Prince George's College of Sorcery has been 19 years of frustration. Magic comes naturally to him, yet he's not allowed to study sorcery because he's a collation, one of a magically created race of animal people. But when a mysterious attack leaves the masters desperate for apprentices, they throw their doors open, giving Kip his chance. As he fights to prove his worth to the human sorcerers, he encounters other oddities, a voice that speaks only to him, a book that makes people forget he's there, and one of the masters who will only speak to him through a raven. 
greater than any of those mysteries, or even whether the college's attacker will return to finish the job, is the mystery of how Kip and his friends can prove that this place is where they belong. The second book that I'm going to recommend today is Kismet by Watts Martin. It's a sci-fi novel set in a far future with space colonies spread out far from Earth where you can become an animal person, or totemic, if you desire. Uh, this one is a little more plot-intensive, as Gale gets caught up in a mystery that may prove deadly to totemics like her. I couldn't tear through this book fast enough. It had been a long time since I read something furry that really mused on the concept of identity in the way that Martin does here. Uh, the back of the book for this one reads, The River, a hodgepodge of arcologies and platforms in a band around series, full of dreamers, utopians, corporatists, and transformed humans, from those with simple biomods to the exotic alien xenos and the totemics, remade with animal aspects. Gail Simmons, an itinerant salvor, living aboard her ship Kismet, has docked everywhere totemics like her are welcome, and a few places they're not. But when she's accused of stealing a data box from a mysterious wreck, Gale lands in the crosshairs of corporations, governments, and anti-totemic terrorists. Finding the real thieves is the easy part. To get her life back, Gale will have to face her past, and what's at stake may be more than just her future. I'll put links to both of these in the show notes, as usual. Also, it's once again awards season in the furry fandom, for writers especially, so I'm going to lead off with a little self-promotion. Last year, I had two short stories released, Hollow in the Bleak Horizons anthology from Fur Planet, edited by Tarl Hotch, and Unbound in Arcana from Thurston Howell Publications, edited by Madison Scott Clary. This podcast, episodes 7 through 13, is eligible for only the Ursa Major of the three awards. Uh, it, it goes in the magazine category if you are inclined to nominate uh, Independent Claws. Now, now there are three awards in the fandom. The Ursa Major, which I already mentioned, uh, open to nominations by anyone. If uh, you are out there listening and you think my work deserves a nomination, please, by all means, uh, pop over to ursamajorawards.org and uh, those nominations are open through February 15th, 2018. The Coyotal Awards, which are open for nominations for members of the Furry Writers Guild, are at coyotalawards.org. That's C-O-Y-O-T-L awards.org. And finally, our new awards, the Leos, which will not have a single winner per category, but rather will be judged by a full panel of five to ten writers, both furry and non-furry. If you have published two stories, or one novel, or three poems, or if you have edited an anthology, any of that within the last five years, you are eligible to nominate for the Leo Awards, and to do that, you need to email your qualifications and recommendation to furrybookreview at gmail.com by February 1st, 2018. So there's only a couple of days left as of this recording. Uh, I will link to the award sites as well in the show notes so you have those links. Um, if you are interested in nominating 
definitely get a move on because we're at the 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 11th hour on those um well uh that's about it for now until next time don't let anything including entitled fans stop you from writing